0: Uh, Lord, we come to you now, we just uh, thank you for the privilege it is to come together as Christians who share uh, unity as a gift in Christ and to open the word. And not only that, but to open up a word that is living and that is sharp like a sword uh, that pierces deep and that instructs us in a way that other books don't. Lord, I'm also thankful that as we draw near, we're reminded from our chronicle study that you're near and you hear us and we have your eyesight and we have your attention and uh, I pray that we would not neglect that. Lord, I pray um, in general just for healing in our body. There are so many um, people who are sick, especially our our young kiddos. I've, I've got a kid at home sick tonight too and so I pray, Lord, that you would Um, Provide healing there and some relief. Um, There's a lot of, when there's a lot of sick kids, there's a lot of tired parents. And so I pray for uh, good rest tonight. And uh, I pray that you would multiply the time and energy uh, that may be lacking in the day. Lord, as we study numbers tonight, um, I pray that we would not lose our sense of awe as we see a God who is very in control and a people who are um, consistently needy. And that may be the only consistency we see uh, in, our, in ourselves and in, in um, our heritage. So uh, we thank you for being a good God who's not changing and a good God who um, communicates with his people and makes himself known. Uh, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, in Leviticus, we kind of have little themes, little points, like a sentence uh, per study, and so each, each week will, um, or each book, we end up with a couple of deals. So in Leviticus, it was God's people are distinct, so they should lead holy lives. And then the second week, it was God's people are sinners, so they should offer sacrifices. In Numbers, what we're going to see is that God prepares the people, but the people don't trust God. So if you're writing down notes, um, trying to get sort of a bird's eye view of what's going on, God prepared the people and they didn't trust him. And so I want to encourage you tonight, um, uh, don't get too down in the study. Numbers is just one of those books where it's like, oh, they failed. Oh, they failed again. Oh, look, they're disobeying again. Oh, look, they're faithless. Oh, look, it's it's just one sort of um, rough go after another. So rather than getting overwhelmed by that, I want to encourage you to keep your eyes on God, Um, even as we're looking at our tendencies as Fallen human beings, keep your eyes on the Lord and look at how good and steadfast He is. Um, turn over to Numbers fourteen eleven. In each book, uh, as we're doing this more um, uh, uh, this more survey type study, um, we're going to have a verse that we, we pick out of the book that sort of sums up what the book's about. In Leviticus, it was, "You, you my people, shall be holy, as I, the Lord, your am holy. I, your Lord, am holy." Uh, and then in numbers 14:11 um that's going to be our verse and it says this and the lord said to moses how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that i've done among them that's the theme in the book of numbers so from the get go it's not like you know high water marks of faith and yay let's 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 look at the goodness here um, the goodness here belongs to god and his people are consistently inconsistent or inconsistently consistent, depending on which way you want to look at it and from what angle, the left or the right. So uh, that's our verse. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? So we're not going to say that one together because it's longer and it would be weird. We wouldn't be together by the end. We'd all feel like failure. So we're not going to do that. But that is a memory verse. I encourage you to spend time uh, with your family and your kids. Um, Again, part of this study is that The adults, the student ministry, the children are all studying the same thing. We're all picking out the same focus verse, and um, there's themes that we're looking at together. So we're hoping that this fosters more communication in your households with your kids. So um, take that verse and and go over it with them. The background in Numbers. Uh, Beginning in Exodus 3 and proceeding through Leviticus and much of Numbers, the narrative of God's people slows way down. Way down. I mean, we go from moving pretty quick, Genesis, Exodus, we cover lots and lots of years, and then starting in Exodus 3, man, the story just just slows way down and covers the span from Exodus through Leviticus, through Numbers, and the beginning of Deuteronomy. We're looking at a year up to the beginning of Leviticus, and then in the middle of, I'm sorry, to the beginning of Numbers. So Exodus 3, follow me here, everybody, picture this in your head. Um, from Exodus 3 to the beginning of Numbers, we have like one year. So when we're seeing how they're acting, it was less than a year ago that they saw the first plague. So we're not covering hundreds or thousands or decades. We're covering like months and weeks here. So take that into account when we see what God's people do. Then in the middle of the book of Numbers, there's a 40-year time of wandering. And it's um, particularly because of their disobedience. And then at the end of that, into Deuteronomy, there's another year. That span so it's like forty years with bookends of a year on either end, and so here we're still within one year's time. What we're going to look at tonight, we're within one year's time of the first plague back in Egypt. So that gives you some context on how to how to consider what are they when it says they were eating manna and they got tired of the manna. We'll get to that in a little bit. They haven't been eating manna for like centuries. It's been like weeks at this point, um, potentially days depending on um, where it falls. So. Um, There's the 40-year period of wandering, (coughs) which begins for the Israelite people, followed by the one-year section that closes out Numbers and fills all of Deuteronomy. So 42 years from Exodus 3 through Deuteronomy, and what we're looking at tonight is that year before the 40-year wandering that happens in Numbers. It's in the book of Numbers that the discontentedness of God's chosen people uh, reaches really its highest pitch, um, even amid God's blessings on them. So here's what we're going to look at sort of outline. First, we're going to consider the aspect of God preparing his people. So if you're writing notes, write God prepares his people, because that's a pretty big deal. Turn to Numbers 5. We're going to look at one small example of how God prepares his people, and we're going to look at a handful of examples. And the first one we're going to look at is found in Numbers 5, verses 1 through 4. And tonight, we're going to, we're going to read some larger portions of text, because we've got 36 chapters in Numbers. And I want us to To be able to climb into the story and to do that, we're gonna talk about some of it, but then we're just gonna read some of it. So um, as I always encourage you when we're reading God's word, import your senses. What does this look like? What does this smell like? What are the sounds that you would hear if you were part of this group of people? What would your emotions be if you were being told these things by God through your leadership? Or if you had made this mistake before God and were unrepentant? What would those feelings be like? What must it have been like for them? So Numbers 5, one through four says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous, who has a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp, that they may not defile their camp, in the midst of of which I dwell. And the people of Israel did so, and put them outside of the camp, as the Lord said to Moses. So the people of Israel did. Now, that may not seem all that informative, but what I want us to see is that One of the first ways that God prepares his people to live the life that he has for them is by teaching them about purity. By teaching them about purity. God teaches them the difference between clean and unclean. God teaches them what you must do if you have become unclean by some means and what it takes to become clean and and to stay that way. And so here, the way that God prepares his people, I want you all to see a people who have been called out of slavery... They've seen the plagues. They were in the land of Goshen. They were protected. They left. Pharaoh's army came after them. They came to the Red Sea. It parted. They get through. They're good. Every one of Pharaoh's army that followed him died. Not one of them survived. They get into the wilderness. They come to the base of Mount Sinai. There's smoke. There's fire. They get the Ten Commandments, and now they're still at the base of Mount Sinai, and God's telling them what, what it's going to be like, and he's saying, Look, you guys have to understand, as my people that I called out for the purpose of worshiping me, you have to understand purity. This is one of the ways he, he prepares them. We've already seen what it takes to be forgiven and atoned for, And the theme continues in the book of Numbers. So, um, one of the ways that he teaches them about purity, one of the ways that he continues in this preparation for them, he prepares them by teaching them about purity, but then he prepares them, there's a lot of peace here, he prepares them by giving them a priesthood, okay? Say that fast ten times. He prepares them by giving the people priests. Now, in our context, that doesn't seem like a real good idea, right? Our context is priest has almost become a bad word and, a a discouraging thought in our context because we generally only hear it when the news is on and they're reporting something discouraging. And so, priesthood was a real blessing from God. I want you all to see this. That God would give his people priests was awesome. A real, real blessing. Now, um, turn over to Numbers 3. Just before I jump into some of these details, and I want to look at some numbers because it is in the numbers. Are there any numbers nerds in here? Any numbers dorks, numbers people? Yeah, you like to look at the numbers and seeing the dots connect and push your glasses on like that? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I enjoy numbers, and and I was reading through all these numbers, and I was like, oh, that's cool, because if that happened, then that means this happened, and then this must have taken longer than I expected, and then I was really surprised by some of the numbers because. As we've gone through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, I've just kind of pictured, you know, 50, 60 guys working a tabernacle. And my goodness, I couldn't have been more wrong in what I was picturing in my head and I wouldn't have known it until I read the book of Numbers. So before I dive into this text, I want to ask just from what we've learned thus far, how would you say, from what you've learned and what we've studied previously, how have the priests aided in preparing God's people for the life he would have them lead. How has that happened so far? Just from what y'all know before we look at any of the text. How have the priests helped to prepare God's people for the life he wants them to live? Yes. Yeah. A conduit of confession and atonement. I mean, I could ask the same question in a different way by saying, what do the priests do? What were their responsibilities? Yeah, a lot of ritual and detail. That they weren't allowed to wing it. They weren't allowed to go freestyle and say, oh, let's give this a shot. Now that was called strange fire. And we read about Nadab and Abihu a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, maybe last week. I don't remember. But uh, you don't wing it. Um, so how else have the priests aided in, uh, in the lives of, of the Israelites? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in my mind, I was picturing 50 or 60 guys, maybe two-thirds of them are going to stay at the tabernacle, the rest are going to go teach. Um, turned, we're, gonna, we're about to see just how wrong that was. But yeah, there were, there were guys, part of the responsibility was not only administering the, the sacraments and the details of the tabernacle, but also um, discerning between clean and unclean, helping people to understand that, which is what we would call teaching. Very nice. Let's, let's take a closer look here. Turn to Numbers 3, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 13. Starting in Numbers 3, we see the sons of Aaron, and then we see the duties of the Levites. Now, there's three tribes that are mentioned here. Uh, the tribe of Koath, the Koathites, Gershom, and Merari. These are the three tribes of the Levites. Now, in, we'll just look at 3.12. It says the Lord spoke to Moses saying, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I consecrated my own I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. What we're seeing here is a pretty sweet substitute that happens by God where he says, yes, the firstborn are mine, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take the Levites as mine, and the Levites are going to be the ones who work the tabernacle rather than all the firstborn, and there's reasons that God does this, and when families with firstborns would look on the Levites, they would probably do so with some thankfulness, saying, wow, that... They're doing good work, and, and I have my firstborn here at, at home. And so, um, what we see here is, is these Levites that are set aside, three tribes. And let's go on to read verse 39. When you add them all up, all the Levite males from one month old up, you're adding up all the Levite males, and you get to verse 39, and it says, All those listed among the Levites whom Moses and Aaron listed at the commandment of the Lord by clans, all the males from a month old and upward were 22,000. I was way off. Like, I've never really read the book of Numbers before this time of teaching through the book of Numbers. Let's be very honest with you. It's not like, I got some time this weekend. I'm gonna hit up the book of Numbers. Um, That's never happened before. And when I saw that there were 22,000 male Levites, is anyone else surprised at that number? I mean, seriously, don't make me look stupid up here. Is anyone else? Okay, good. One other person is surprised about the 22,000 Levites. That blew my mind. Are you kidding me? 22,000 males. That's a lot of Levites. That's more than the 50 or 60 I was picturing working very hard and receiving the sacrifices. So here's the deal. 22,000 male Levites from one month old up. That's a lot of Levites. Now, Look at chapter four, verse 48. What they did was they took all of the men in those three tribes who were between the ages of 30 and 50. And those were the guys who would do the particular work in the tabernacle, okay? So we got 22,000 Levites and then those between the ages of 30 and 50 were the ones who did the work of the tabernacle. Ministry is what it was called. And here in verse 30, 48 in 4, it says, those listed were 8,580. So we have 22,000 Levite males from one month old and up, and those who were doing the service of the tabernacle were 5, what did I say, 5,800, 8,580. I get my numbers mixed up sometimes. 8,580. The guys who were like in their 20s or they were retired because they turned 50 and they got to live the good life, they were still assisting the ones between 30 and 50. They were still assisting them and still continued to teach outside of the camp, but they would no longer serve in the particular tabernacle ministry. So this is an army of men, and part of their ministry was guarding. It says, minister in the tabernacle, but guard the holy things. And one of the parts of their guarding was these guys um, would come in, if if a foreigner would come too close to the holy things, they would kill them. That's what the Levites would do, because you you don't profane holy things. And so if someone tried to come too near, maybe mix their worship of their God with, with your God, the Levites had a very clear command to God, you kill them, guard the holy things and guard the people. The Levites were no joke. These weren't just a bunch of pains. He's wearing like linen robes and, you know, kind of hippie love, kind of pictured like, that's not what it was. These guys were, this was like an army of men who were serious about things that are holy, serious about honoring God and everything that they did, serious about teaching the people the difference between clean and unclean, loving them, shepherding them, helping them with the sacrifices, the atonement, taking, receiving, hearing those um, confessions and, and, and guarding the tabernacle. Now, here's what's cool. This, this blew my mind. They go on in the book of Numbers, and, and this is where the numbers part is fun. And God says, you know, keep the Levites separate, but take a census of all the people. Keep the Levites separate, their mind, take a census. You take a census of the Levites, but not with the rest of the people. So there's 22,000 male Levites. Then they took a census of all of the firstborn of Egypt. Because remember, the Levites are gonna be replacing what the firstborn would have otherwise done, Right? Guess how many firstborn of Egypt there were when they took the census at the same time? 22,273. Now, how long does it take, just anyone want to take a guess, on how long it takes to get two tribes up to the 22,000 number and offspring? Anyone want to take a guess? I have no idea. I couldn't figure it out. I sat and messed with it for a while. But that doesn't happen overnight. It's not like, hey, next year, we're going to be kind of changing out what the Levites do with the firstborn. Can we try to match the numbers up? Y'all start making some babies, and then we'll, you know, we'll be we'll be there. 22,000. Uh, like, this is where I want y'all to see. I really like it when I come across things in Scripture that are just historically sound. Sometimes in our faith, we can struggle. And we're like, man, I just sometimes it feels this ethereal and mushy and you know god is sort of like this and but we can't see when you get to see like hard facts like this sometimes it can be encouragement for your faith not the foundation of your faith because we don't walk by sight we walk by faith and they're against each other however here this bolsters my faith because i say you know what in order for there to have been 22,000 levites to replace the 22,273 um, firstborn God was all over that for generations previous. Like only a sovereign God could have said, hey, let's see if the numbers match up. Yeah, watch this. You know, And then they count them up and it's like, oh my goodness, it's almost a one-for-one match. And then for the 273 that weren't there, God said, give, I believe it was five shekels um, per head to Aaron's family. So the Levites weren't just who Aaron's offspring birth, the Levites were given to Aaron's family as Aaron was the high priest and his family would have oversight of the tabernacle. So anyway, what we're getting at here, there's a lot of oversight. If you have that many leaders, what are some other things you must have? Followers? Yeah. What else? Yeah, think logistically. Are you kidding me? 5 I'm sorry 8580 men working the ta- How many deacons are in here? How many deacons? Okay? Couple. How difficult is it to get straight who's going to do the offering count or who's going to be greeting or who's on security for that Sunday? We have technology and emails and all these things. I can hit something on my phone and make it go out to the whole staff immediately and it all syncs up our schedules and it's all fancy. 8,580 overseers. This is a lot of oversight. This is a lot of leadership. And there must have been a lot of coordination, a lot of communication, a lot of patience with each other, and a lot of detail. That's why God goes into such detail. You do this. You carry this. You carry this in this manner. Like when he said, take the holy things, and, and when we transport them, um, there was a particular tribe as one of the three that was to transport them. He wouldn't say, um, he wouldn't say, hey, grab the holy things, and you, you grab the poles, and, and you grab the linens. That wasn't how it was. God said, here's what you do. You can't look at the holy things. So this people over here, they're going to take the linens and the veils, and they're going to cover them up. And then once they're covered up, you carry them. But you can't carry them in any particular way. You, in fact, have to put them on your shoulder. Don't look at them. You can't see the holy things. But your tribe's going to carry the holy things after they cover the holy things. And also, when you carry them, carry them on your shoulder, because if someone comes near the holy things, remember, you've got to kill them. I mean, there were so many details, and there's so many Levites here, and there's a lot of work going on at the tabernacle, and a lot of teaching going on in the tribes. So God prepared his people by giving them priests, and there's a huge encouragement there, because when you see the the effort that God goes into to have almost an even match in the 22,000 range... You just know that for generations, God's been making these plans. For generations, God has been saying, I'm going to prepare my people. I'm going to give them what they need to live the life I've called them to live. Sometimes we think in terms of, well, God calls me to these things, and it's impossible. I can't do what God calls me to, and that's not true. It says even when it comes to sin, he provides the way of escape. And so God is very detailed in um, how he prepares us, how he prepares people. He prepared them by showing them what holiness was. He prepared him by giving them priests. Third, God prepares his people by giving them his presence. Look at chapter 9. In chapter 9, the Passover is celebrated. Um, from our previous studies that we've done, what does the Passover remind God's people of in regard to God's presence? What are the people reminded of? How are they informed? How are they prepared by the Passover in God's presence? Yeah, they were in danger. If they had to leave, God would protect them when they left. They'd look back on Egypt. and When they looked back on Egypt in the first Passover, what would they remember? What were the, what were the sounds that would come to their mind? Smells. Yeah, the bleeding of the lamb, yeah. What what are some other things that the Passover would remind God's people of in his presence? hmm Yeah. Blood on the doorpost, yeah. So they have the meal, unleavened bread, cooked just how God says, fully consume in its first year without blemish, uh, doorpost and lentil. Um uh, yeah, a wind would blow. And what was that wind? The wind of what? Death. The winged destroyer is what the King James Version says. I love that. Um, I don't like. I don't get giddy about the thoughts of the winged destroyer, but that's really um, appropriately poetic language to say we're, we're talking about the Lord coming through camp and killing the firstborn. But the Passover would remind them that the wrath of God. What does Romans one eighteen say? The wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. They've suppressed the truth in their actions, but, but God is saying, my wrath that's towards you for that is now on that lamb. And the Egyptians don't have the lamb. The Egyptians are without that, and the Egyptians are still going to receive my wrath. And so when they look at the Passover, the Passover is a sweet way that God prepares them by reminding them of his presence. Look at 9.15. They've, uh, they've taken the Passover, God reminds them of, of his presence, and it prepares them for what they're supposed to do, and it says in 15, on the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning, so it was always there, the cloud covered it by day and appeared of an appearance of fire by night, and whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. So the cloud's there and they stay there. If the cloud rises, they move on. That's how God would communicate with his people. And that's at the center of the camp. So all the people with their tents facing the center of the camp would be able to, to see what God's doing there in the cloud. Verse 18 At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained at camp, even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days. The people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the, according to, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then, according to the Lord, command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, and when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time, and the cloud continued over the tabernacle abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. Are we following? We get getting the theme here? Okay. Um, at the command of the Lord, they camped. <laughs> at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. And then look what these, these silver trumpets do. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Make two silver trumpets. So we're looking at the numbers here and the dynamics of how all these people were ordered and structured and how God would communicate. How could they all move at the right time or not move at the right time? How could they stay on the same page? And God goes to great lengths to prepare them to know when to go, when to stay, and how what they're listening for. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Make two silver trumpets of hammered work you shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the chiefs, the heads of the tribes of Israel, shall gather themselves to you. When you blow an alarm, the camps that are on the east side shall set out. And when you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown whenever they are to set out. But when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow a long blast. But you shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow trumpets. Now, there's another thing that the priests do that we wouldn't have found out until this point in Scripture. Some of them blew trumpets very, very loudly, because <laughs> there's only two and there's a lot of people. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets. The trumpets shall be to you for a perpetual statue throughout your generations. When you go to war in your land against the adversary, or adversary, however you want to say it, who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, that you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. That must have been a cool moment, right? Very brave braveheartish. They're about to go to war. They sound the trumpets, and they know at the sound of the trumpets, the Lord remembers them, and it's time to go to battle. That's a pretty cool moment. On the day of your gladness also and at your appointed feasts, and at the beginning of your months. You shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings, and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. So, to sum it up, what other blessings do God's people get by God's presence? What are some of those blessings we just read about? Yep, pillars of fire, cloud. So we got Passover, pillars of fire, cloud. What else? The trumpets. Nice, nice. Sometimes I ask questions that aren't hard just to make sure everyone's good and awake. That's what that one was. So um, it should be an encouragement to us to remember that our God's not just a reactive God. Sometimes we view God in terms of like something goes sideways and, we're surprised by it. And then we go to God and we're like, did you not see that coming? Did you not know that was going to happen? And this whole section of scripture is encouraging because it reminds us he's not just a reactive God. He's sovereign. He doesn't simply respond to our circumstances in a beneficial way. He prepares us for life ahead of time. Our God, I want y'all to hear that. Like if you turn on the news, like I turn on the news within two seconds, I'm generally depressed. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I, I, I'm to the point where I can't watch the news with my kids because something so tragic and horrible and disgusting and revolting is is happening somewhere. And they're speaking of it like, like so-and-so's lip synced the national anthem and this person, their throat was slashed with a hammer. Just like, oh, 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 oh. just like, you know, ease. And so this is encouraging to me when I see a God who prepares us for life ahead of time. He He knows what's going to happen And he prepares his people. So my question for y'all is, what are some ways that God prepares us today? He's called us to a life of holiness. He says, in Christ, things are different for you. So what are some ways he prepares us? What are some things that you know about tomorrow that will help you? No guarantees. He's in charge of tomorrow, the Lord of the day. What else? There, there should be like, like y'all, your mind should be saying, which of these hundred things should I say? Okay. Yeah, that's pretty cool. The second coming will be announced with a trumpet blast. Next time y'all hear a trumpet, it's gonna freak you out a little bit. <laughs> Is it go time? The Holy will bring all to yeah. Yeah. The Holy Spirit brings all things to remembrance. You, you have the Spirit as a seal, as a guarantee. What else, what are some things you know about tomorrow? God is prepared because God's prepared you. Oh man, never leave us or forsake us. So we have a tendency to say it's bad. God must be on a lunch break, but it's good, so he must be close. but He tells us in his word he'll never leave us or forsake. Romans eight, gosh, nothing separates us from the love of God. Now persecution, danger, nakedness, the sword in all those things. We're more than conquerors through him who loves us. He's a good God, and he wants us to know he's always near. There are times in the Psalms where he hides his face from his people, and some people talk, um, have referred to that as what's called uh, like the dark night of the soul, where it feels like God's distant. But you got to remember that just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean it is a certain way. And God does that as a means of discipline to his children whom he loves. He does not discipline those whom he does not love. If there was no discipline, he would not love you. He would be treating you like a father um, that's abandoned you. And so even when he feels far away, he's still very near. So there's real encouragement there. That's all like... Like, an hour from now, tomorrow, we got those things. We, we know those things. And that's why we're children of the promise, because we care about the promises of God, and we hold fast to the promises of God, because they, they sustain us, and they, they help keep us going, because we can look through that and say, that's certain. He has never, never gone back on a promise, ever, ever. You can't ever find an example of him going back on a promise. And so, there's sweet encouragement there. What are some other things that God does? Things we know about Tomorrow. Never leave us. Never forsake us. What else? Oh man, isn't that sweet? Every morning, when you take the first breath, it's mercy. It's grace. Like 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 um, grace for the mercy for the moment. Grace for the day. Every single morning, fresh mercies. Say that again. Yeah, our hope is in Him. not worldly things. What does he tell you to set your eyes on? Yeah, set your eyes on the things above, not the things of earth. We have the assurance of our ultimate salvation. Yeah. But it reminds me of, of like when I watch Apollo 13. Mm -hmm. You know, they make it (laughs) back. Yeah. You know the end of the story, but you follow the drama and you get into the drama, Mm -hmm. even though you know. Yeah. And it's funny how we are, that we know we have that yeah 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 each of those opportunities each of those each of the drama moments or drama season those are opportunities for his glory he he's ordained those he he's a significant purpose in each of those what are some other things ways god's god has prepared us Yeah, yeah, he's prepared a way for us and a place for us. Man, that, this is just getting more and more encouraging. Like, I, I don't only have to know of a place and uh, figure out how to get there, but he's also provided the way with, for which we'll get there. I mean, sword and shield, oh yeah. Now we got, we got uh, the, the, uh, the helmet, the, the belt, the sandals, the sword, the shield. We've we got the armor of God. He's given us the armor of God. And so, in each circumstance, we know that that's something we have as a gift from God. What else? Yeah, he helps us. Right, like you go through the Bible, and he says um, he he outlines what's evil, what's wrong. If if you see someone oppressing uh, the poor, you can say, "Hey, wait a minute." that's not right. I'm supposed to do something about that. If you see someone on the receiving end of injustice, you know from what your Bible says, hey, you step in and you, you exercise justice for the person who's on the receiving end of that injustice. And we know what's evil and we can know what the work of the enemy is because he has warned us and told us ahead of time, one, by saying this is what it is, and two, by saying don't take part in this. Don't take part in the unfruitful works of darkness. What else? Yeah, submit to the Lord, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. So if you find yourself feeling like you have to flee from the devil, think, uh, wait, I stand firm, is what it says, resist, and he'll flee from you, because you're in Christ. That's where the power is. So I'm starting to sound a little, a little excited, a little charismaniac. We, we are prepared in so many ways by God, um, and I am so guilty personally of losing sight of it. I, I, this last year, I, I hit a really difficult season and hit a low, and I think it's because I lost sight of many of the ways that God has prepared us. And I started thinking, well, maybe this isn't his best for me. Maybe I'm not receiving his best. Maybe this sad thing I've seen over here and the sad thing I've seen over here, m- maybe it's not what I thought it was. And, and we lose sight of the way that God prepares us And we're no longer drawing on his promises. We're no longer exercising faith, which is saying, I have no idea what's going on here, God, but I trust you. I don't understand this. This is horrible. I trust you this morning. (laughs) I've been really challenged by um, Clay's testimony on Sunday and the message that, you know, wherever you're at right now, that's God's best for you. Boom. That's challenging. My family has been like, our kids, and like, there's members of the body who are struggling with death. Death. Uh, cancer, major things. We're just struggling with general sickness of small kids, and it's about to drive me insane. We've been doing it since October. We go maybe three, four days, and then someone else gets sick. We, we may get a little window, and someone else gets sick. It's gotten so uh, difficult that yesterday I just kind of hit a point where I'm like, oh, I cannot get any momentum because I have to clean something up Or go pick up a prescription or go to a doctor's appointment or relieve Lindsay so she can do that and I'll watch the other kids. And I kind of hit that, okay, whatever you're teaching us, I like it, God, and I want to move from this. I'm tired of this. And this morning I got up and uh, I didn't feel good. And I was like, awesome. And I didn't sleep well because I didn't feel good. And I went to the sofa at four o'clock. And so it was like this restless, I get up and I'm like, oh, it's a new day, and I feel horrible. I start doing some work, and I'm like, you know what? We prayed for healing. we got to kind of walk in that. I'm doing work here anyway. Might as well go ahead and get back up to the office. So I can do it more efficiently there. Okay, I'm going to get dressed and get ready. Let's do this. And I get dressed, and my daughter throws up all over me. And I was like, this is God's best for me right here. Like, you're doing the, you know, spread your legs as far as you can and hold the baby out as far as you can because you don't want it to splatter, and... Uh, and, um, yeah, that, that, to say, <laughs> that's God's best for me right now. We, th- there's moments like that. That's pretty light compared to some really heavy things people face. But, I mean, you can lose your mind if you lose sight of the fact that <laughs> God's best is, is happening for you. And you have something to learn in that. And he's a good God. He's only good towards you. That's another way he prepares, prepares us. We don't have bad days and say, oh, man, this is a bad one because God's being bad toward me. Hopefully he'll be good to me tomorrow. No, he's only good toward you. That's another way he prepares us. He gives us access to Him by the Spirit. He prepares us. He tells us where to set our eyes. He tells us this is our temporary dwelling and we have a heavenly dwelling awaiting. He tells us that the way is narrow and hard. He tells us that too. So when it feels like, man, the way is narrow and the way is hard, what's going on? It's like, well, he told us the way is narrow and hard. He's sovereign. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. He prepares us in so many ways in the same way he's always prepared his people. So suffice it to say... Our God is full of grace and mercy and is unfathom, um, unfathomably good to his children. And this should cause us deep trust and thankfulness towards him. We should trust our God because he's trustworthy. And we should thank him because he's only good towards us. Turn to chapter 11 of Numbers. So that's where we're at. We should trust him because he's only good. We should never turn our back on him. We should never raise an arrogant voice towards him because he's only good, right? Look at chapter 11. The next six chapters are a sad picture of the people's unfaithful response to God's preparation. Remember, he prepared them by showing them what's holy. He prepared them by giving them priests and leadership. He prepared them by his presence with the Passover. He prepared them even with the trumpets and how they would hear it. He prepared them with the cloud. He prepared them with the fire. He prepared them in so many ways. And these chapters show that their response to his good preparation was unfaithfulness. What we will find is that God prepares the people, but the people don't trust God. The the, the obvious question as we look at this is, do you trust God? I I feel like I should tell you, it's not always easy to trust God. I'm in the flesh. Another thing that I know if I'm in the flesh is my Bible says the flesh and the spirit are opposed to each other to keep the other from doing what the one wants to do. So it's like over and over again. Trusting God is not always this easy thing. Some people make it look that way. Maybe their faith is very strong. Maybe they're just putting on airs, trying to be impressive. I don't know. Some people make it look so easy. Like when I see people who are just facing crazy uncertainty, the Hicks, Tara Hicks, um, she has a lump in her neck and she's going to remove it. Her dad just had cancer from the same spot and we've been praying about it through small group. You look at Tara, calm, calm poised, collected, homeschooling the kiddos. Good. You talked to her. Are you okay? Yeah, we're good. We're going to get through it. I'm thinking, okay, that's me. I'm freaking out. Are you kidding me? There's so much uncertainty. How how can I, how can I trust anybody? How can I trust the doctors? Where, Where did that guy go to school? I mean, there's all these things that like, man, if we don't trust God, it gets crazy. And there's some people that trust him, uh, Deeply, but even trusting him deeply, they didn't do that with ease. It takes work. It takes work. I, I get very frustrated when people proclaim a type of gospel that takes no work at all, like prayers easy, um, uh, not being angry is easy. Uh, trusting God in all circumstances, especially the difficult ones where there's real uncertainty and fear that's easy. It's not easy but our God is infinitely good. He doesn't want us to trust him by telling us it easy. He wants us to trust him by telling us he's really good and he's really sovereign, he's really powerful, he's really in control, and there's no one above him. That's how God draws us to himself, not by saying, come over here, it's easy. So here in chapter 11, uh, look at verses one through six. It says, and the people were just finishing the silver trumpets and Israel leaving Sinai and all this provision and God preparing them, and it says, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord, about their misfortunes. Their misfortunes, that's what they're complaining about. That's what we complain about, our misfortunes. So we look at this and we say, that's ridiculous. And then we would have to say, and I'm ridiculous. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down you imagine that? That's a display of power. Wrathful, fiery fury consuming parts of the camp. Moses, what do we do? Moses prays and the fire dies down. How's the trust meter right here? Where's that trust meter at? The fire dies down. So the name of that place was called Tabera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them is a great word. I refer to my children as rabble sometimes. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. The people of Israel also wept again and said, listen to what they say. Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing to look at at all but this manna to look at, nothing to eat at all. This manna to look at. What's manna, just to be clear? What is, what is manna? Bread from heaven. <laughs> Bread from heaven. That's what manna is. It's you're in the middle of a wilderness and you got nothing. Oh, thank goodness someone from heaven sent us a care package. And they complained because they wanted something else. And in fact, they say, oh... Oh, that we were back in Egypt. Now, why are they out of Egypt now? From what? What kind of slavery? Killing them slowly slavery. We'll go with that. I like that. Killing them slowly slavery. He came to them because he heard their cry, is what it says in Exodus. The Lord heard the great cry from Egypt of his children Israel. They were crying out from the oppression. They were being made to make bricks without straw because Egypt was fearful of how very numerous they were becoming. And it was becoming more and more oppressive as more numerous as they were getting. But they were getting more numerous because that was the promise of God. I'll make you as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. So these promises of God are being fulfilled and God's people are being oppressed. That Happens sometimes. In the the word, it says, um, uh, Give an account for the hope that you have with gentleness and respect. And it it goes on to say, So that when you are reviled, not if you are reviled. And so um, that's a promise that prepares us also for tomorrow. So they are not in Egypt anymore because God heard their cry. And He's a good God. And He came to them and He delivered them and He brought them out. And now they're sitting here after all this provision, all this preparation from God to help them move forward faithfully, they're saying, oh, that we were back in Egypt. Don't y'all just remember the meat pots and the onions and the leeks and the garlic, and it was so good. Um, That is ridiculous. I mean, that's completely ridiculous. There's nothing that disgusts me more than those food shows. If there's any foodies in here, I'm very sorry. But the food shows that generally have big guys um, like, going around and surveying plates and they go in and it's like there's that guy Ferrari or whatever the spiky hair weird guy someone know what I'm talking about he has spiky hair and a spiky beard and it, it's just disgusting because uh, they just eat stuff the whole deal I, do, I guess I don't like watching people eat but they, they go and he's like oh this is so good. Oh. and the, the same response from every person who eats something like this go mm-hmm. just like this over the top Thing and I'm like, that's gross. I'm watching you get junk on your fingers and under your fingernails and it's on your beard that you dyed different colors and it's weird. And that but they're so just in heaven and I get to I get the best job ever. I record a TV show where I eat junk all the time. And it just looks like a heart attack waiting to happen. And that's kind of what I picture when I picture them, Oh, that we were in Egypt. You remember the leeks and the onions and the garlics and the big pots of meat. Like it amazes me that no one took the shoe off and threw it at the guy who started the conversation. Saying, seriously? The meat pots They were beating the tar out of us. They were killing our children. They were, they were hurting us. It was oppressive. And you, the meat, do you remember how good it was? No, I don't. It wasn't good. God heard our cry because it wasn't good. So here, it's just absolutely ridiculous. We can be the same... I have been this week the same level of ridiculous as as the Israelites here. I've seen so much good from God. I've seen so much provision. When I got puked on this morning, I was the same level of ridiculousness. It was like, for real? Oh. And then I'm like, whoa, whoa. I don't want lightning to strike the house. Let's calm down. But up until this point, Israel has seen the Lord do amazing things. Remember what I said at the beginning of the study. They're less than a year from Exodus 3. It was less than a year ago. They saw all these amazing deliverances from the plagues, and the plagues, those who weren't delivered, it was hard on them, and it was good for Israel, and he brought them out in the Red Sea, and manna fallen from heaven, and they go out and they collect it, and it's just like, and wah. God, you're not giving us what we need. God, you brought us here to die. Oh, that we were back in Egypt. I mean, I cannot imagine hearing being God and hearing Oh, that we were back in Egypt. Now, we could spend all night recounting the deeds of the Lord that Israel had witnessed up until that point. And here are they specifically, what do they specifically complain about here in these verses? Their what? Yeah, their lack of meat. They call it their misfortunes, which they're calling their lack of meat. Yes, the monotony of their diet. Now, I could look at this and say, "Y'all are ridiculous." At least you had food. If you've eaten the same meal like three times in a row, it's probably not far off. You're like, "Okay, I'm tired of ribeye. Ribeye is a bummer. <laughs> I've never had that happen. I think I could eat ribeye every day, but it could happen." So, turn to chapter 12. I'm going to read a few verses aloud. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman, and they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, uh, and to Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting, and the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and Aaron and Miriam uh, a tent i 'm sorry, the tent, and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward, and He said, "Hear my words, if there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision I mean they're hearing the words of the Lord at the tent of meeting this is remarkable. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses he's faithful in all my house." With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. So, so they're saying, oh, what's so big about Moses? Can God speak through us? And God's like, let me tell you what's big about Moses. I speak to him face to face. He sees my form. It's not, he doesn't need someone to t- figure out what I'm saying. He can hear me. We speak face to face. That's what's going on. That's my plan, and I'm God. And he goes on to say, uh, he he beholds the form of the Lord. Uh, Why then were you not afraid to speak against the servant Moses? I mean, that question, you could make it not a question, God saying, you should be afraid to speak against the servant Moses. I've done something special here. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous. Like snow, and Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, "O oh my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb." And Moses cried to the Lord, "Now hold on. Who is being badmouthed here? Moses. And what's Moses doing here?" Praying for Miriam. He's not pointing and laughing. Oh, you got that coming to you. He didn't do that. He didn't make faces like, oh, looking a little little white today. Flaky. (laughs) He goes and prays for her. He says, oh God, please heal her. Please. Meek and humble, absolutely. He goes on to say, but the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face... Should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march until Miriam was brought in again. And after that, the people set to Hazeroth, and the people came to the wilderness of Paran. Now, um, those closest to Moses complained about Moses' authority, and their complaining was sort of a, a result then of what a this other complaining toward God that had already happened. It starts, God, you're not who I think you are. Then let's look at the leadership. Leadership, why are you so special? And then here, God speaks to them, and um, God responds uh, clearly, and Moses responds clearly. I want us to see tonight that God prepares the people, but the people don't trust God. They reveal their lack of trust through complaining, which we'll see in chapters thirteen to fourteen by rebelling. We're going to pick up in thirteen next week, but they just they rebel. They, they don't just complain, but they actually go on to rebel. And we're going to see some reports on the leaders of the tribes uh, where um, clearly it was not sober-minded. Um, Texts like Numbers can be disheartening uh, because in reading and studying them, we're reminded of our depravity, our narrow-mindedness, and our short-sightedness. We're reminded of our deep desire to walk by sight because faith is so hard. But... My hope for us tonight is that we can be reminded of all that God's done for us and is doing for us, how he prepares us, Um, and hold each other accountable not to respond to that kind of movement from God in in an unfaithful manner. In Numbers, God prepares the people, but people don't trust God. And I really want us to ask, like, are we really trusting God? Do we look on his preparation and cling to it? Do we see his promises and cling to him? Um, Do we trust him deeply as an act of... Of worship and an exercise of faith let 's pray, uh, Lord, we love you very much. Um, it, it blows my mind when I look at the response of your people to, to your preparation and to your goodness and to the way that you, you brought them out and you showed them such such wonderful things, and you led them gently lord i 'm thinking of Isaiah 40 and i 'm thinking of psalm 78 where you are a God who leads those who are with young in a gentle manner and you, you scoop them up in your bosom and, and you, you walk with them in a gentle manner and you know our deepest needs before we voice them. And yes, you, you are a God of wrath when, when unrighteousness is there, but even in our unrighteousness, we're not left alone. You've given us Christ, who's our perfect righteousness. So ultimately we look at this text and numbers in the first half of the study tonight. And, um, I pray that um, we would rightly identify with Israel, that we would rightly identify with them and say, you know, we we can certainly be unfaithful. And I pray that in our areas of unfaithfulness, our areas where we have a tendency to complain um, and to grumble and to rebel, uh, I pray, like, really pray in the spirit, Lord, that no one would sit here tonight and look at this and, and continue grumbling and rebelling, I pray that we would see that you're interested in what's best for us, and we can't understand that in our finite mode, but we can trust a God who does understand it. Lord, I pray that we would think about the generations, some who even were born into slavery and died into slavery, but their offspring at some point made up the 22,000 Levites in the census. You're a God of abundant provision, and we're a very, very blessed people. Lord, again, as we close, I do pray uh, for healing uh, for those in the bodies. There's many sick right now, uh, many kiddos not feeling well. And I pray also that um, you, truths like this and, and truths like what we heard on Sunday um, would give us patience um, in, in trying circumstances. Lord, there's, there's people in the body who are um, caring for ailing parents and aging parents. Um, there are people in the body of sick kids. There are people in the body who are going through difficult work dynamics, um, there are people in the body who are working through, through marital struggles, there are people in the body who are sorting through um, old hurt that's come to light, um, in all those things, let us set our eyes on you, let us set our eyes on, on the King of kings and Lord of lords who is good to his people, let this humble us, as we see the way you are towards us, help that to inform the way that we are towards other people, um, eager to help. You're going to be there. You're going to provide um, to forgive where it's needed, to inform, to instruct, to bring peace. Lord, we love you very much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.